You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present and the owners of the land you are hearing us from. This week on Woman on the Line, Juliet McClear fights to be seen as a whole person and Nikita Rotama uses boxing to keep kids fit and safe. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. This next segment contains subject matters that may be distressing to listeners. For support, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Julia McClear was one of the early champions of the NDIS. As a former local area coordinator, she understood the scheme's potential. That was until Juliet was denied funding for tube feeding. Juliet's story came to my attention when she began documenting her journey on Twitter. However, there is light at the end of this story. Stick around to find out the latest on Juliet's fight to be seen and affirmed. And now, let's hear from Juliet. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Juliet. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us your name, who you are, um, and any other information that you think is relevant to the conversation? I'm Juliet. I live in Queensland. Uh, I am a public servant. I uh, previously worked for Disability Services Queensland for 12 years as an LAC in the state. Um, I am a mother of five and I am doing a PhD. I'm trying my very best to be a contributing member of society and uh, at present I'm currently asking the NDIA to fund some reasonable and necessary supports for me as I'm already a participant in the scheme. So that's, I guess, why we're having a chat today. Can you tell me, because you said you worked for Disability Services Queensland, can you tell me about the kind of work that you did? So as a local area coordinator and a team leader of the local area coordination program in a regional area in Queensland, It was our role to connect people with mainstream supports in the community to help communities to become more inclusive of people with disabilities and generally just help people with disabilities to navigate all of the systems that they interacted with around them before the NDIA came in, before the NDIS came in, sorry. Um, And obviously when the NDIS was announced, we were all very excited because as LACs and as people working in a state-based system, we could see a lot of unmet need around us. It was very hard to see um, people struggling to live their lives, to meet all of their needs and to participate in society on an equal basis with everyone else. Um, it shouldn't have been that hard. And the NDIS was announced and we thought, this is wonderful. This is something that's going to help so many people. And we had such high hopes um, for this scheme. And I... I just was so excited for the people that I worked with that they were going to, you know, in the very near future, not have to fight so hard for what they needed. Um, Sadly, this is not the scheme I envisaged. Mm. Now that I have a disability myself and I need the scheme, I'm utterly shocked by what 
I've seen and experienced. I, I had no idea. Can you say more about help. that? What have you experienced? Um, what have you seen? So I am access met for uh, one condition, but the NDIA is currently refusing to see me as a whole person with multiple impairments. So um, the condition for which I have access met is not the one that I need tube feeding for. So I have a gastrostomy tube. Some people might know that as a peg in my stomach, and I get the vast majority of my nutrition through this tube. I can actually eat some food orally and I can drink uh, fluids. I can probably meet maybe about a quarter to a third of my nutritional needs via oral means. I can't have anything that's got too much fiber in it and it's a very limited diet, but I can still have chocolate and coffee and cheese, which is uh, my priority in life. Um, and obviously food is one of those things that people derive a lot of joy and pleasure from. So I'm quite grateful that I can still uh, at least taste some of the things that I enjoy. But fundamentally, tube feeding means that I don't have to cause myself pain and nausea trying to eat a full diet that will meet all of my nutritional needs which uh, when I left hospital after the um, events that left me without most of my small intestine and stomach, I was trying to meet all of my nutritional needs orally. At one point uh, for about five months, I was on total parenteral nutrition, TPN, which is um, nutrition through your veins that goes into a little vein just above your heart. Uh, that particular form of um, uh, artificial nutrition comes with a lot of side effects. Um, my liver was struggling with that. And luckily, another surgery I had meant that I could come off TPA. Um, and then I attempted to eat orally for a little while, and that was untenable. And so my surgeon placed a gastrostomy tube, a Mickey button, and um, that has changed my life. I spent a couple of months with an NG tube off my face at a, a a tube taped to my face while I was working and uh, trying to live my life for a period of time. Um, and that's how we knew that tube feeding was going to be the solution for me in the long term, because um, once I could meet my nutritional needs that way, or the bulk of them, I could think more clearly, I could participate in my university studies more clearly, I could attend work um, and actually get my work done to a, um, you know, a standard that I, I expect of myself. And even, you know, when you're malnourished, obviously things like your ability to care for yourself and um, shower and all of the things that you do every day become more difficult because you don't have the energy. You don't, you know, it's like not providing fuel for a car. If you don't, if you don't put fuel in, it will eventually uh, slow down, stop working as well and, and eventually stop. And the human body is a bit the same. And short bowel syndrome is the name of my secondary impairment that I'm asking the NDIA to add to my plan. Um, and that's the condition for which I need the tube feeding, obviously. So because it's a medical condition, that places um, you know, a few barriers in my way because obviously uh, the health system is expected to meet uh, health-related needs. So there is a, a difficult interaction between disability and health that I'm trying to tackle with the NDIA. And I do understand where the complexity lies and sits. Um, but at this point in my life, two years after the incident that caused me to lose most of my bowel and stomach, I am permanently impaired. This impairment is permanent, ongoing, and I have a lifelong need for support. I will be tube fed for my life. Um, and that's what makes it a disability. That's what brings it into the realm of um, I'm going to need this particular support in order to live uh, a life where I can 
economically and socially participate in society on an equal basis with other people. I mean, the, the fact is that short bowel syndrome is an impairment. It meets all of the criteria under the, the disability, the National Disability Insurance Scheme Act. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why um, the decision has been made that it doesn't substantially reduce my functional capacity in a range of life domains. Because as you can imagine, trying to live and socialise and look after yourself and um, learn and do anything is impacted by being effectively staffed. So that's why I think the NDIS should fund tube feeding. And there's also the fact that they do fund it. it you know, they fund enteral feeding supplies for many participants in the scheme. And that's part of the issue is that it depends on whose desk your plan or your um, access request lands on as to, you know, everybody interprets the guidelines and the scheme differently, it seems. And you, you hear stories everywhere of people getting a different response from the NDIS and the NDIA um, in response to very similar requests. And it all comes down to the person who's currently dealing with that matter and how they interpret it. It should not be a lottery. It yeah. shouldn't be about who you get and who your file lands, you know, who's, whose desk your file lands on, sorry. They also remind me of like job service providers. Sometimes you get really amazing job service providers who understand your situation and who want to work with you as opposed to being combative. Then there are those who are very rigid and, and the way they interpret the guideline, as you said, is very narrow, very harsh, you know. Absolutely. I can't believe something like disability support would be seen as this, I don't want to say cash grab, but this very very punitive thing. Mm, I don't want to be tube fed, but I know that a future life for me that involves any level of quality of life is going to involve tube feeding. So I'm not fighting to be tube fed because it's something that's fun or desirable for anybody. It's because it's something that I need. And it's because I want to be a contributing citizen. And in order to do that, I need to have access to appropriate nutrition. On Twitter, I saw that you shared uh, the letter of rejection, um, for want of a better word. Um, there was also an option to request an internal review. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I guess they're trying to make it seem like, oh, you know, it didn't go through. Um, better luck next time. Why isn't it yes. as simple as that? That is a very good question. <laughs> Uh, I, let me tell you about my journey with the NDIA so far, because that will paint a bit of a picture for you, I think. I dealt initially with the national access team to lodge my access request. That's one part of the agency. They asked me for more information. I provided it. They sent me a letter to say that my request had been successful and that I had access met. Second step, I met with an LAC who was based in Perth over the phone for my planning meeting. So she doesn't work for the NDIA. She works for uh, an NGO that is a partner of the NDIA. She informed me at this point that my secondary degree disability hadn't been added and that my tube feeding couldn't be funded. And at that point, um, she said, it's okay, we'll get your short bowel syndrome added at this point to your plan as a secondary disability. And then she asked me for additional information about that. So I went to see my specialist um, and I went to see my gastrostomy dietitian and I obtained further evidence that this condition 
uh, is permanent and ongoing, that all treatments have been tried and are not getting any better than this, and that I require lifelong support, and that it has a substantially, uh, it, it, it results in a substantially reduced functional capacity in a number of life domains. So I provided that letter. This request, so this is step number three now, uh, to add my secondary disability, then went to the national planning support team in national delivery, and they declined it. Uh, I made some frantic uh, phone calls to the National Contact Centre to speak with a CERCO Labour Hire staff member um, after my LAC had contacted me again. That was step four. Step five is me contacting NCC to speak to CERCO. Uh, they can't tell me anything meaningful. Um, they also, I ended up in this phone loop where I was going from ringing the NCC, the National Contact Centre, getting shafted to the LAC who doesn't work for the NDIA. I'm saying, I want to speak to a delegate. I want to speak to someone who made the decision so I can understand the decision because I'm distressed by the decision. But I just kept going round and round in circles and gave up in the end. Uh, I took to Twitter clearly. <laughs> um, and I guess then I complained about all of the above once I recovered. I picked myself up the off the floor and said, okay, you've got to take a step. You've got to follow some sort of review process. Um, and then I, I lodged what is called a request for explanation of decision. So at no point in any of these steps had anyone told me I had the right to make this request. So that internal review that you're talking about is a formal review, an S100 review under the Act, which takes 90 days. I had another option open to me, which was to request this explanation of decision. So I did that. Um, and then I heard from the internal review team, six. So this is five parts of the agency that I've already dealt with in the last little while, all who are there supposedly to say no. <laughs> to my reasonable and necessary support needs. Um, and that's the other point I wanna make. If we're worried about the sustainability of the scheme, how much staff time has been spent declining my reasonable and necessary request for starters? I know I've said a lot of negative things about the NDIA and the NDIS but I still believe it is one of the best things to happen to Australian society. It's one of the biggest reforms since Medicare. I'm proud of our country for tackling this and saying people with disabilities deserve to participate in society and we wanna make that happen. And as a society, we believe that people with disabilities make an important contribution to society. I am a person with a disability, I have complex disabilities, I want to be seen as a whole person. I know I can contribute to society in a meaningful way. I just need a little bit of support to do that from the NDIS. And I'm just asking them to reconsider their decision that not having adequate nutrition isn't, doesn't result in substantially reduced function, it does. Thanks again to Juliet for highlighting what happens when our national disability scheme fails to recognise the complex needs of individuals. And as promised, an update to Juliet's story. Juliet's secondary condition, short bowel syndrome, has finally been recognised to reduce functional capacity. This means she can now receive the urgent care she needs. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. Our next guest, Nikita Rotama, 
runs Crow Youth Boxing. However, it's not just any boxing program. We begin this segment with Nikita, the manager keeping children off the streets and in the rings. My name's Nikita Rodema. I'm a Gunich, uh, Gunitimara woman. It basically began because, uh, you know, I've, I've always been into boxing. It's been an outlet that I've used over, you know, throughout my life. And I, I actually, I just love the sport. And so um, it was more of a personal uh, situation that was occurring in my life with my two teenage sons that was making me very um, concerned, especially just coming out of COVID. I noticed a lot of young First Nations kids were really struggling to adjust. And there was a lot in, in my area where I run the program. There was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of violence and a lot of uh, loitering around shopping centres. And there just became a whole heap of issues with all that. And like I said, both my sons were of the age where they were hanging around, getting into the, these situations that they shouldn't have been. And I was just so worried. Um, but ultimately, it was it was the passing of a young man that was a close friend of my brother uh, of my oldest son's that really kicked me into gear. I just thought, you know, I box six days a week and I'm literally in the gym, which is in the same suburb as where a lot of these kids are hanging out. So it pretty much just it, I didn't know how it was. I had no idea it would turn into crow boxing. I just was sort of like a sort of like a desperate mum just trying to do what I could because there's, there's actually just not enough services here for young First Nations youth. Um, you know, being a youth mental health worker myself, just knowing the cycles that our kids are caught up in, um, the destructive cycles and, you know, the high representation in the youth justice system. I mean, we are like a, we're a minority group in, in our own country. You know, I don't know if we make one or two percent up of the country, but here in Victoria, 29% of the, uh, the children that are filling up these youth detention centres are Aboriginal, you know, or Torres Strait Islander First Nations youth, and that's just a ridiculously high statistic considering we're a minority group. Um, and the, yeah, there's just not enough preventative work um, or safe spaces for the our kids to go. So I, mm. that's pretty much how I just started inviting kids in. I said, you know, meet me at the gym. Uh, I'll train you for an hour. And the first week, I think we had seven. And the kids loved it so much that they wanted to train again that week. So, you know, on the next a couple of days later on the Thursday, I said, oh, we'll come back Thursday. And then we had 12. And then it literally built and built and built till last year. We had, um, we had 44 First Nations kids come through and 16, uh, ally youth. Cause I've told the young people, you bring whoever your friends are, whoever you want to bring, doesn't matter what background they're from. You know, because that's just another important aspect for me to um, get our young ones doing positive. Like when I first heard of you, um, Nikita, it was during the Invasion Day rally in Melbourne and that's when I heard about the program and I thought to myself, this just can't be, there has to be more to it. And that's why when I reached out to you on email, I was like, you know, the vibe that I'm getting is that it's not only just um, playing the sports but it's a it's about cultivating a space where you know young people feel safe and supported and where they can connect with people from similar or different backgrounds and I love that has that been your your reflections and do you have any anecdotes to share about you know young people who've come through and the changes that you've seen yeah I mean 
there's been, I mean, I could say something special about each child, you know, and I think that's important when you're running any kind of program like this is that, you know, most of these kids get thrown in the too hard basket, you know, or the troubled child, you know, then they're, they're causing the scene in the community. And it's like most of these kids just want to be heard and seen and actually feel like someone actually cares, you know. And I make it a real point every time we run the program that I acknowledge each of them, you know, the new ones, the ones that come every every week. And ask them how their day was, ask how they were, you know, how school went, what, you know, why didn't they go to school? You know, just one little time through the session where I connect with each child and let them know that I see them, I know that they're here, you know, and I'm, I want to know that they're doing okay, you know, um, because it's, you're right, it's not just the boxing gym. I, wa- I wanted, when it started kicking off and really kids started coming in, I knew straight away I wanted it to be like a home away from home because we have a lot of kids that are out of home care or, you know, they're not living with their family. They're sort of drifting around. And um, I wanted them to feel like, yes, this is a boxing gym where I learn the sport of boxing. And trust me, they also learn uh, a lot of discipline, a lot of resilience. A big thing in a boxing gym is to have respect, respect for yourself, for your opposition, for your trainers, for your peers. You know, like if you don't have any respect, don't bother stepping into a boxing gym. From what I'm hearing, and you've already covered it, it's so as you've said boxing is the platform in which the kids are being brought in but it's also developing things like accountability responsibility it's giving the young folks structure um, it's giving them community and and connection which is so important and I guess that's why a program like this should continue to um, thrive and and so on. There's currently a fundraiser because I know you've been footing a lot of the bill. Um, tell me more about the fundraiser and how people can help out. Sorry, there was a GoFundMe last year and I haven't updated it this year uh, because literally, um, like I said, it, it, nothing, none of this was planned and it kind of blew up in my face and then just I wasn't going to let the kids down. They kept coming, so I was still I was going to provide what I could each week. So it felt it still kind of feels like just week to week, just battling it out, you know. But just making sure we're present and we're there. So these kids might not have um, consistency in other areas of their life, but they know that this day and this day they can come here and they'll get the love, nurture, and support that they need. It's a battle, it's like anything is, especially when it's not planned. And I'm sort of just going week by week and trying to. Uh, get people on board, um, but it's really worth it. When you see the kids still showing up, even if you know we had a young boy come uh, last yeah last night that he didn't want to train, you know, but he still wanted to be in the environment. So you know he came, and I tell the kids if they, if you don't want to train, you don't want to train. Just don't you know? I'll give them a little job. Can you cut me the fruit? Can you make sure your brother boy's got water when he's you know? Um, if they don't want to train, it doesn't matter. I'll make them helpful around the gym and then um, I still know they're safe. They're, they're with us, you know. Yeah, and that's why, like, Crow Youth Boxing is so important because, you know, I mean, you've listed a million of the reasons that it's important and I'm really hoping that more people get behind it because it's amazing that, you know, your friend Con was able to, to provide support and even the community recognises amazing work that's being done. And I love, love the fact that it's a collective effort that the kids are also getting involved in, I guess, making the space run efficiently. I think that is so, so important. 
Um, before I let you go, do you have any any other final thoughts, anything else that you want to um, add to this story? I guess I just want to honour my father, Peter Rodimer, because he was known as Crow in the community, and he's the reason why I named it Crow, because my father taught me uh, everything I know in regards to, you know, he was very passionate about our youth. They they were in keeping them in community and, and protected by their culture, and, and really he used to do that groundwork to, to try and he, he helped so many people in finding their identity, a lot of people that were displaced and stuff in the past. Um, and he really showed me that a young person needs to know who they are and they need their culture, a young Aboriginal, a, you know, a young First Nations person. They're two very important things that they need um, because he, did, he taught, taught me, you know, that foundation, they're strong in who they are, then they're less likely to go adopt other cultures or uh, lash out um, and get angry and, you know, that lost feeling that young people feel when life's not steady. And that was Nikita, the manager of Crow Youth Boxing, reminding us that children strive not in toxic, punitive spaces, but rather in places where they can strive towards their full potential. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on their community radio network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 94198377 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au forward slash Woman on the Line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Ian Shirwa and you've been listening to Woman on the Line. And you got points, but they ain't even valid, Khan. I go to war every day, my black is uniform. You say I'm fair skin, I say you're too gone. I got these features from my matriarchs, they skin dark. And you ain't even know shit about it being hard. They used to beat them, and then rape them, then they took they kids. Gone, tell me why I ain't got trauma in this life I live. I see my brothers get ripped by the hands of white pigs. I even went on a trip, but I came back from it. Salute the matriarchy, you ain't fucking with this. Salute to all my titters who is handling biz. We ain't backing down to no patriarchy or shit. We come from strong bloodlines, we was raised to quit. Bow down. Came to do what she came to do, son No pity for this cat, says a nuisance You ain't fucking with this black fella movement If you think he really is, keep it moving Boogie down with my mob, I keep it groovy If you got me in a grip, you gon' lose me I ain't sorry for the way that music moves me Sorry, not sorry, baby, I am ruthless You wanna get something straight with me? I walk the hard road when no one was there for me I pick myself up, I got a lot of strength in me And that's real talk, you should be fucking scared of me
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.